0: If you don't see color, you don't see me. And if you don't see me, you cannot know me, you cannot appreciate me. You cannot be anti-racist. You can't be non-racist. You're either racist or anti-racist. And that's for white people, black people, anybody of color or you consider the majority or minority or whatever. Welcome to Love Your Neighbor. In this episode, Reverend Ann Kirchmeyer speaks with Reverend Willis Foster.
1: Hello friends, today is Saturday, July the 25th and I am here with my friend Willis Foster today. Um, I wanna tell you a little bit about him and then we will engage in some conversation. So Willis was born on Halloween, which I love, a Halloween birthday. He was born in Greensboro, North Carolina. He has a Bachelor of Science in Sociology from North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. He has a Master's of Science in Management from Troy State University. He's done postgraduate work in higher education administration at Old Dominion, and he has his Master's of Divinity from Virginia Theological Seminary. Willis began his uh, career with the military as a sh- with, with a short tour in the US Army, but then he was commissioned in the United States Marine Corps and designated a Naval Aviator. His active duty assignments included tours of duty in North Carolina, the Caribbean, Hawaii, the Western Pacific, Japan, and Europe. He retired in the year 2000 with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. After that, he became an assistant professor at Regent University's Center for Leadership Studies with a special interest in and focus on mentorship. Then he went on to be employed as a military analyst at Naval Training Group Atlantic and then as a senior military analyst at the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Suffolk, Virginia. He has been ordained for 10 years, and he is the rector of St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Petersburg, Virginia, in our Diocese of Southern Virginia. Willis has a wife, four children, and seven grandchildren. And I know Willis through diocesan events. I'm remembering especially that we got Paired together for some small group discussions once and that was my first time really to have a conversation just with you and then I'm thinking that um, I just find you so warm and friendly and I'm remembering that the last time we were together in a meeting. It was one of those big zoom meetings uh, with about 20 clergy and I was Talking about something I was concerned about and you were sending me a message of uh, support and encouragement. (laughs) So I really appreciated that so Mr. Willis, just beginning with, uh, you know this, that we, I've been having a series of conversations with folks about particularly the race um, problems, situation, tensions, racism, stuff that we know has been going on for a long time, but right now it feels like um, hopefully white people are paying more attention. And so I, that was the underlying uh, start of these recorded Conversation. So, given everything going on right now, how are you doing?
0: No, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I have to tell people, I have to admit, uh, I am a, and most people don't believe this, but I am a serious introvert. And uh, this time is not bothersome to me. Because I love my cave. This is my cave. I love interacting with one or two people. Sundays are hard for me because I have to deal with a bunch of people, you know, uh, and it's very tiring. So when I go home on Sundays, I, uh, I have to, my wife goes upstairs, I stay downstairs, and sometimes I take a nap. But being with a bunch of people drains me. So mm-hmm. this is this time is energizing for me it gives me a chance to read and all of that. So I'm doing okay as as a person. Um I am so full of hope. Uh during this time of social ferment. Uh mm-hmm. because I am seeing so many young people stepping up and leading protests in peaceful ways. You know, this Black Lives Matter movement is decentralized. Uh, And in that decentralization, you see Black kids and white kids and kids of of different colors and different economic stations fighting for the freedoms of all people in this nation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a very different movement than the civil rights movement in the in the 40s, 50s and 60s where it was a centralized group of people and it was pretty much black and white, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what gives me hope is if I can say this, and I don't know if this is the right word, the democratization of the movement. Does that make sense? It does. That's
1: fascinating. I hadn't thought about that before, but
0: it, you know, and so we, we were celebrating the life of 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 John Lewis. Yes. And
1: the
0: and the amazing thing about John Lewis, when he spoke uh on the podium of uh, uh you know, the, the, the march uh, in Washington.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He was 23 years old.
1: I read that, and it's amazing. Yes.
0: So he had done more in his 23 years than most of us do in 60 or 70. And the same, the same drive that he had in his young life is the same drive that I see in young people that are marching on the streets, that are standing up, of the young people that are in Congress, so, I mean, I, I'm doing well. <laughs> I am doing good.
1: Yes. So, what about the, the current situation with uh, you know r- racial tensions being, I mean, very evident and public? Um, and the police, uh, you know, the, the resistance, and understandably resistance to police violence and that kind of thing. What is what is the situation like for you and your family and your congregation?
0: Well, you know, I, I start with the personal piece. Um, I was born in 1948 in Greensboro, North Carolina. So. Uh, The majority of my life has been uh, in a segregated society, either openly or not quite so. Uh, I have lived with racism all my life, uh, and I have learned to navigate uh, uh, life with the police that aren't always my friends. Yeah, you know so. Uh, what you're seeing, what many people are seeing for the first time is the life that I've lived for 71 years.
1: Yes. Yep.
0: You know, and so this is my experience writ large. Uh, there's, there's a story I tell about my father. Um, my father graduated from a and same school I graduated from. My mom graduated from A&T. My dad graduated with a degree in engineering and my mom uh, in in art education. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was very difficult for them to get jobs once they graduated from college. And so my mom ended up working in Edenton, North Carolina. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And my dad Mm -hmm. worked a blue collar job in Greensboro. And so my mom would come visit on the weekends And uh, she'd get on the bus Sunday night to go back to to Edenton for a job. And they tell me the story. I was too young to remember it. But when Dad went to um, put Mom and me on the bus, uh, there was no seats in the back. And so she put me and my mom in the front of the bus. Bus driver, you know, said, no, y'all can't sit there. And the men got off the bus and beat up my dad and, you know, threw us off the bus. Wow. Well, the the second part of this story, you know, this is the, the, the weirdness of segregation and how segregation really hurts the lives of the segregator and the segregatee, if you will. The next week, my dad went to the bus stop with some of his boys, his guys, and he was telling me the story, and he said they beat up the bus driver. And then he goes, well, you know, it was the wrong bus driver. But, you know, that's what happened during those days. So wow. uh, that's the experience of me and that's the experience of my family. And if you look at it, that's the experience of... St. Stevens is a black congregation.
1: I, you know what? I didn't... I wondered if it was... I've never talked with you about that. So predominantly black. We're, we're predominantly white, I think, you know.
0: Yeah. And so St. Stephen's was founded... It's the oldest African-American Episcopal congregation in the Diocese of Southern Virginia. It was founded in 1867.
1: Wow. Right after the Civil War. Yeah, wow. right
0: after the Civil War. And, and so it has a... a Truly interesting history because it was also the site of the Bishop Payne Divinity School.
1: Ah, yep. Yeah.
0: Which was founded in 1879, which trained black men to be priests in the Episcopal Church. But it also, a lot of people don't realize, in its later years, trained and uh, educated women to be Christian educators in the Episcopal Church.
1: I didn't know that. You're right.
0: Yeah. 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 So, and it, it, it closed in, um, 1949. Um, so my experience is not, not different than the experiences of the majority of people in, in at St. Stephen's, you know, we've all experienced and grown up in, uh, for the most part in the segregated South. Uh, we've all experienced some form of racism. Uh, we've, we've had to deal with it. And except for, uh, it's going to sound really stupid. Oh, <laughs> we have, um, We have five five white members of our congregation. Mm-hmm. And uh uh three of them are are younger uh under under 40.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh the other two are are um over 70, one's over 80. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ladies is from England. She married a Black guy. They met in World War II. And when they came to Virginia after uh, the uh, Supreme Court uh, 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 decided, uh, you know, did the loving decision. Right. Uh, And so they were able to come into Virginia as a couple. Uh, They... Went to an Episcopal church, but it was a predominantly white church, and and the church told them that they may be comfortable at Saint Stephen's, more comfortable at Saint Stephen's. Mm-hmm. Um, the other that's a the other mixed race couple is is uh, is a young couple whose daughter is my uh, is the daughter of my who's white who's the the female part of the couple is the daughter of my best friend from the Marine Corps. She's white, and she's married to a black guy. And they are uh, a member of our congregation. Uh, and one of the guys, uh, I'll name him Buck Palmer. Buck, Palmer, Buck Palmer's great-great-uncle mm-hmm. was a major in the Confederate Army. On Robert E. Lee's staff uh, during the Siege of Petersburg, uh, and his name is uh, Giles Buckner Cook. Giles Buckner Cook was the second rector of St. Stephen's Church. And he was also the one that started what became the Bishop Payne Divinity School. Wow. Uh, so Buck is a member of our congregation. and He's been a member of us for uh, eight years. Uh, but he is his ancestor was one of the people that started Saint Stephen's Church.
1: Anyway, that's great. Wow, thank you.
0: Yeah.
1: So then y- you told us that wrenching story about that you're not remembering because you were so young of your you and your mom getting kicked off the bus and then um, you know just the aftermath of that. The the one of the questions that I've been asking folks because again I just I think it's so important for white people to realize that racism is present all over the place and all the time. If if you'd be willing to to talk um a little bit more about some of the racism you yourself have experienced in you know in your lifetime in your memory. Well,
0: you know, it it, it begins <laughs> what's that thing? It begins from the beginning. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But uh, you know. So every year, my father used to drive to Mississippi. He grew up in, 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 in Mississippi, in Greenville, Mississippi. My grandfather was an Episcopal priest in Mississippi. So every year at Christmas time, we'd go down. And my father would drive straight through from Greensboro to Greenville, Mississippi. Uh, this was before the interstate highways. And so it would take about 20 hours right. and he would drive straight through.
1: Wow. Cause there wasn't anywhere to stay or anywhere no
0: safe to thing. stay. And he would not stop at a service station that only had, now think about this, that only had a man and a woman's bathroom. Because if the service station, if the service station only had a man and a woman's bathroom, you couldn't go as a black person. So you had to stop at a service station that either allowed you, which in the south they probably wouldn't, or that had three bathrooms. Wow! So you know just that just traveling. Um. I uh, I went to segregated schools all the way through college. Uh. So. The uh, what Brown uh, versus Board of Education said that, uh, you know, in 1954, you needed to, uh, you could no longer have separate but equal schooling. Well, they started integrating the schools in Greensboro about 64. I graduated high school in 66.
1: So 10 years.
0: Wow. So, and then they only. What they did in, 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 the, in the school system in Greensboro was they integrated the teachers first. So what they did, they took the experienced black teachers out of the black schools and put them in the white schools and the inexperienced brand new teachers, white teachers, they put in the, in the oh, black school. Wow. And then they chose the best of the black students, or the, the, the children of the black elite in Greensboro to go to the white schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I, I, I'm just thinking about this. So as Greensboro started integrating things, um, this is another stupid thing. My best friend uh, was a guy named Billy Gamble. And his dad was the dean of men at a and And as they started integrating things in Greensboro, they started integrating a bowling alley. Hmm. And so what would happen, different bowling alleys would give tickets to prominent blacks in Greensboro so that you could come and bowl on Saturday afternoons. So I remember Billy getting a ticket and him sharing the ticket with me so that we could go bowling on a Saturday afternoon. So we could go to the bowl with a ticket, but it only, it was not given to any Black person. It was only given to certain Black people of a certain economic standing. okay? Um... So, we, you, you could only go to one theater, uh, well, two theaters in Greensboro. Mm-hmm. The Carolina Theater had an upper balcony. So as black folk, no, it was the Carolina and the national theater. So it was two of the white theaters you could go to. Uh, but you had to go in the back door. And then you'd go up the stairs and you'd sit on the uh, upper balcony. Um, now there was the palace theater, uh, in the black economic area in Greensboro where, you know, all the black folk went, mm-hmm. uh, you, 15 cents. You could get in the movie, get a bag of popcorn and a, and a coat. It was great. I mean, yeah, for 25 cents, you, you, you live large. Uh, but you know, my whole life is—I remember one time being stopped as I got older. In fact, this was in 1970. Uh, this was in 1980, something,
1: mm-hmm.
0: mid-eighties. I was—I uh, was stationed at um, at Marine Corps Air Station New River, and I was driving home from Raleigh. And I had a beige four-door rabbit, Okay.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I was by myself. And I was coming from, I I did Aikido at one time. And I had a sword in the back. And I got stopped by a highway patrolman. Mm -hmm. Wasn't speeding for once. (laughs) Wasn't leaving or anything like that. And when he stopped me, I asked him why he stopped me. And he said, well got a call about two black men in a uh, blue beetle. Uh, and I was just making sure that you weren't them.
1: Wow. Wow. Yep.
0: You know, it's, it's just yeah. there have been more serious things. Uh, but these are some of the, you know, it's the little things yeah. that uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, Um, I was on Okinawa in 1979 and I was an aircraft commander and I I was also a uh, designated uh, VIP very important person pilot and I was a second commander and all those kinds of things you you get you fly helicopters Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and I was tasked to fly this colonel around uh, the Island for an inspection that he was doing mm-hmm. now this Colonel was the commanding officer of Marine Corps Air Station Atlanta mm-hmm. uh, and there was a reserve squadron that I wanted to uh, be stationed I wanted to be stationed there, and I wanted to join that reserve squadron as a pilot as as part of my career.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I had been flying him around for about three hours. And we we uh, were in, we had landed and he had gone somewhere and then he had come back. Now, I was his pilot for, for three hours. I was flying this helicopter for three hours. And I had on my flight suit with my little name tag, with you know, the wings and my name and my rank on it. And we were talking, and and I, and I asked him. I said, Colonel, do uh, you have uh, something for me, a guy like me at, at Marine Corps Air Station in Atlanta? I'd like to go there. And he looked at me and he said, Yeah, you know, uh, we, we we have plenty of uh, bullets for crew chiefs there. Now, I wasn't a crew chief. I wasn't enlisted. I had been flying him. He'd been seeing me flying the Algonne. Right. So just uh, the idea, okay, that's, that's a simple story.
1: But, but that's the box you fit in. You're gonna be a crew chief. Doesn't matter if you flew
0: him, yeah. So the other story that I have, and this is simple story, but I was a, a flight instructor at the Navy Flight School. Um this was in 1981, 1981, I think. Um, and we had a problem with the helicopter that I was flying and the two students that I had. I had, two, I had two white students in the helicopter. And so we had to make an emergency landing. We made an emergency landing in a field. Uh, in northern Mississippi. And so I asked the students to stay with the helicopter. Uh, There was a farmhouse close by, and I I crossed the road, knocked on the door of the farmhouse, but nobody was there. And so when I was on the way back to the helicopter, I crossed the road again, and I saw in the distance a police car. So I just went on to the the helicopter. Uh, A sheriff drove up. A white sheriff, and he pulled his gun. Wow. Uh and he was he was he was treating me as a suspect because he was saying that you know he thought I was a drug a, a smuggler flying this helicopter with navy right, right on the side <laughs> of it. It was orange and white, and he was. He was really upset. And so I told one of the white students, look, you talk to this. And I walked away. So, um, so being an aviator in the Marine Corps, I was normally one of, if not the only one of two black officers in in a a squadron and so that had its own challenges so i've experienced racism from the time i was born till Mm
1: -hmm. to,
0: to right now uh you know you experience racism in the church um what i was having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day and i was saying you know we have, in terms of people of color, an amazing group of bishops in the Episcopal Church. Yes. Uh, But what we don't have is a lot of Black priests in the church.
1: Interesting. And,
0: you know, and and, and so, um, what's the problem in... in in finding people of color with the call. And I think there's quite a few of us out there, probably a whole lot smarter than me uh, and a whole lot more faithful than me that are out there. But how are we reaching out as a church, people of color to lead us? Mm.
1: Right. I mean, because I imagine that to step into a church and a system where racism is present and evident isn't very inviting. Um, I don't know if you recently saw the conversation of Stephanie Spellers and Winnie Varhees and um, Kelly Brown Douglas, but they were calling on the church to be the church. Um, I imagine that being a clergy, a person of color, you'd like to do that in a church that's living the life that a church ought to be living and, and isn't so full of the racism that we see.
0: But uh, there was a book written by uh, Harold Lewis.
1: Yeah, uh, in fact, I, I know Harold Lewis. I spent a little time at his church, yes.
0: Uh, it's, 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 he's a great, great guy. And, and the book is Yet With a Steady Beat.
1: Yes, yep, I have yes.
0: it. And you know, the, the, the first sentence in the first chapter of that book is a, is a quote attributed to Booker T. Washington. Yes. And it says, if any colored man is, if, if, if a colored man is anything other than a Baptist or a Methodist, somebody's been messing with his religion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all... So
0: in that book, Harold Lewis explores the question, why would any person of color stay in the church of the slave master?
1: Right. Right.
0: You know, and one of the answers he gives in that book is that those of us who joined and who stayed in the Episcopal Church understood the promise of the belief of this de- denomination just like even though the declaration of independence wasn't written for us we understood and we live into the promise that it makes
1: mm-hmm. that makes sense it does make sense absolutely and so
0: we live into the promise of the episcopal church we live into the values that the Episcopal Church expresses, even though it doesn't live it at this point.
1: Yeah, that does make sense. So you've you've actually uh, made it easy for me to segue to the next question, which is: so, what can white Christians and uh, white Episcopalians do to be allies uh, for for Black Christians and our our? Um, other Episcopalians and other people of color? And is there anything in particular you'd like to say?
0: The, there's a wonderful book that uh, I've been reading uh, uh, by an author, a young guy, a brilliant young guy. His name is Ibram X. Kindi.
1: Okay.
0: Ibram X. X. Kendi. And the title of the book, is how to be anti-racist, hmm.
1: <laughs> and cool. yeah.
0: it's it's a great book. What I'm doing right now is I have my little tablet, <laughs> but I want you to I I, I want to read this because there's some things that you have to read directly. You don't want to say from memory, right?
1: I get it. I get
0: it. Yep. It, and one of the things he speaks to is that uh, calling someone or saying that someone that they're a racist is not a pejorative. It's a def- it's a definition, okay. And so, what does that mean? That definition. So, a racist, one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction. Or expressing a racist idea. So by that definition, you could be a racist, I could be a racist. Now I experienced uh, a racist situation uh, when I was in the, in the Marine Corps in, stationed in Japan, where a, a black master sergeant, a force master sergeant came up to me and said, you are uh you are a traitor to your race. And I said, Okay, and why am I a traitor to my race? He said, Because you're an officer in the Marine Corps, and black people aren't officers, they're enlisted. Now think about what he internalized, right? And think about. With that internalization, he was not only thinking about himself, but thinking about so he'd internalized those racist things mm-hmm. that are expressed on TV, on radio, in books, and newspapers, and in society in general. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so anybody can be a racist. This is what a definition of a racist is. So what is an anti-racist? one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. So one of the the, 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 the things that he says in this book is, is either or. it's nothing in between. Mm-hmm. You're either racist or you're anti-racist. Mm-hmm. I remember one time sitting uh, with uh, a youth group, uh, EYC group. Mm-hmm some years ago, and one of the young people was saying how they had been raised to be colorblind, and I pushed back and I said, well, that's not helpful. I said, because if you're colorblind, you don't see my color, then you don't see me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Because, Because part of who I am, how I am, where I am, and what I do is influenced by this. Even though I haven't had a haircut in a while and I may look a little shaggy. <laughs> but you know, if you don't see color, you don't see me. And if you don't see me, you cannot know me, you cannot appreciate me. You cannot be anti racist if you don't see me. Okay? So you can't be non racist. You're either racist or anti racist. And that's for white people, black people, anybody of color or we consider the majority or minority or or whatever. And so what I ask of my white friends Mm -hmm. is that we strive, you and I, to be anti-racist. That's what I am. That's what I desire. And if we can do that, all of us, then I think we might have a future here. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes.
1: thank you, Willis. I've I've been um I've been thinking about that term anti-racist because some of the reading that I've been doing recently has been using that specific terminology, Um, and I. My understanding of racism, I haven't read um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, so I'm not familiar with that book and his description. But one of my understandings about racism is that there's prejudice in which, um, and that's kind of a human tendency where we make judgments about people who are different from us. But racism is where power gets interlocked with that prejudice and so um, you and i might in my understanding you and i might both be prejudiced but i have power just because of the color of my skin that's my my unearned and undeserved privilege and so my because everybody is prejudiced my prejudice pretty much automatically becomes racism because of the power that i inherently carry And so to be anti-racist, I need to be paying attention to that and be thinking about, you know, what assumptions I've made or understandings I have, like the the two sort of toward the end examples you gave in the military. Those people looking at you, you know, the guy who wanted you to be a crew chief, um, he only saw the color of your skin. He didn't see anything about you other than your color. He just made you know, made an assumption. Um, and it was also, an
0: assumption that 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 was not. It was an assumption that was made
1: outside of reality. Yeah, it it
0: was it was not a real thing. Let right. me tell you this other story. This is a stupid story. I'm full of stupid stories. <laughs> it's
1: <That's>
0: okay. <laughs> I was. Um, this was in nineteen, was in ninety eight, ninety nine. I was in the PX, and I was standing behind this this uh, female Navy officer, and she was returning a pocketbook that she had bought that was defective. And there was a black lady behind the counter, and 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 I was close enough to hear the interchange, you know. Mm-hmm white lady says, hey, my pocketbook is bad. I need to return it. What do I need to do? The sales lady said, go over there, pick a new pocketbook, bring them both back, and I'll make the exchange. That's what happened. So when I get up to the counter with, with, with whatever it is that I was buying, the black lady looked at me and she said, you know, them white people think they can talk to you just about any kind of way just because you're black. I mean, she... She was just rude to me, and she was just saying things to me. And I'm going, what world is she in? And what world am I in? Because that was not the inner thing. Interesting. That was not the same reality. And so this colonel was not in the same reality that I was in because he did not, he did not accept the reality of his eyes right. and the reality of his experience.
1: You had just flown him, yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and so not only do we need to be anti-racist, but we have to understand the reality of who we are, where we are, and what's going on in our life. Mm -hmm. does that
1: make sense? So you said um, at the very beginning, you talked a little bit, actually, about um, what my final question is here, about what gives you hope in this situation. And so you've mentioned, seeing young people especially um young people of of different uh you know not just black and white people but just a mixture of folks um but w- did you want to add anything else to that or um either way is fine
0: well you know we have a chance and um if i if i may make a comparison absolutely what the the covid-19 pandemic has done for us it is It has given us, it has put us in a place for us to focus on things we would not normally focus on. Mm -hmm. And I am comparing it to the 60s when not many people had television, but when in Alabama, when on the television news there was these scenes of young black children you know in their teens being attacked by dogs and hoes with fire hoses and being beat mercis- mercilessly mm-hmm. and so that captured the imagination of the nation right And in capturing that imagination, it caused the nation to rise up, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: not as one, but it caused the nation to rise up. What COVID-19 has done, it's constricted us and it's made us pay attention. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It's focused our attention and it has not allowed us to, to be as scattered, if I can use that word as Mm -hmm. scattered as we normally are influenced by the the myriad of outside influences. And what it has allowed for all of us to see is what many of us people of color have experienced all our lives. What is normal to us is not believed.
1: Right. Right. You know,
0: and so what the nation is experiencing is my and people like me the nation is experiencing our normal life. Yeah. And so hopefully in experiencing either vicariously or directly What's normal for me, the nation will understand that it is truly not a Christian nation because it does not support, and I'm being over the top on this, love of nature. You know, I was reading an uh, an opinion piece by uh, Susan Susan Rice. Yep. And she's saying, this is an opportunity. And one of the things that has been brought to the fore is the inequity, not only between people of color and the majority, but also the inequity between the rural and the urban. Wi-Fi deserts in the in the urban areas, the Wi-Fi deserts in the rural areas, the the the, the food deserts in the yes. urban areas, and the food deserts in the rural areas. It's highlighted the inequities not only between the races, but between the economic classes. Yes. And just because schools can have uh, uh, education over the internet, just because they can offer distant education, just because they offer computers to all of their students, the students still can't access those students. Some of those students can't access the Wi-Fi. Right. And right. It, it may not be. Uh, a student of color that can't access it. Right. You know, I, I live in the Tidewater area, and so uh, some school system, I think it was the Olive Wright uh, school system, would park buses, school buses, and parking lots. That. Yep. So that there would be hot spots so that the kids could do the work. Yeah. This nation is better than that. Mm-hmm. We are better than that as Americans. I'm probably going all off where else. That's I okay. Hopefully I answered the question.
1: You did. <laughs> and I'm, I'm mindful of the time. So I'm thinking that um, as as you know, we I usually wrap this up with a prayer. Um, so I want to say first though, Willis, thank you so much for being willing to share your stories with us and and taking the time to Take part in this with me.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you for, for asking. I, cool. I enjoy you anyway. I enjoy talking to you. So this is this has been icing on the cake.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Willis. So I'll just say a brief prayer. And then if you can um, add a prayer and then lead us into the Lord's Prayer, that would be great. That's okay. Holy God, I thank you for my brother Willis, for his candor and his graciousness, willing to share stories with us. Lord, help all of us to have our eyes and our hearts opened ever wider. Help us to work, as Willis points out, toward being anti racists recognizing that there is no middle ground, and that if we are going to make improvements for the betterment of everybody we each need to take a look inside ourselves and also to pay attention to the reality around us so we pray for your help lord god
0: we also pray for your love (laughs) and we pray for the love of your son and we know we have your love we know we have the son's love, but we need to pray for that love so that we can internalize that love and so that love can flow through us and help us to open our arms and our hearts to all people, our brothers and our sisters, and in opening our hearts to all people, we not only need to open our minds to see the reality, we need to open up our pockets so that we can clothe, we can feed, we can visit the prisoners, we can support uh, a just system of justice. Lord, help us to see you. Help us to come close to you. Help us to see you in our brother and our sister. Help us to see you in the one that hates us and in one we hate. Mm -hmm. Help us to see you in all things, in all creation. because seeing you in all these things. Seeing the love that you have prepared for us in this time and the time to come. Help us to love each other as you love us. Our Father, who art in heaven,
1: heaven. hallowed
0: be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Come. thy will be done on on earth as it is is in heaven.
1: Give Give us
0: this day
1: our daily bread and give us our trespasses.
0: trespasses As we forgive those, those
1: who trespass against us and lead us, us
0: not into
1: temptation, but deliver us from evil, evil for the kingdom, kingdom and the power, power and the glory forever ever and ever. ever. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening, and thank you for following and sharing Love Your Neighbor. The show is produced by St. Andrew's Episcopal Church, Newport News, Virginia.